Thanks so much for being here as we worship God together. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors at First Free Church, and welcome. We're so glad you are here. I love what Andrew said a moment ago, that this is a preview of what heaven looks like, and it really is. All of us gathered here together to worship God with one voice and unity together, and we worship him not only with our singing, but we also worship him by studying his Bible, the Word of God, and so we're going to do that in just a minute. Before we do, just a couple things I want to share with you. Um, one is that if you are new, we would love to connect with you, so please feel free to let us know at efree.org slash connect or text the word connect to the number you see on the screen. Uh, we do have a special gift for you as well at our welcome desk, so make sure you go back there and fill out a card for us if you want to get that. It's, it's really awesome, um, and we'd just like to get to know you better, so if you're new, please do let us know, and, and let us know if you have any questions that we can answer for you about the church as well. Also, if you want to get the latest information about what's going on around First Free Church, the best way to do that is at the weekly, efree.org slash weekly. We used to do a paper bulletin that you could get when you come in here, but we stopped doing that because of, you know, COVID-19, the pandemic and all that. We stopped doing most handouts and things of those nature. So you can still get all of that information and actually more now at efree.org slash weekly. And there's a lot of cool stuff going on around here. And I'm not sure how many of you were at the annual meeting and heard some of our plans for the year. I'll give you just a little, little snapshot of it here today. But um, we've got, you know, the corner property that, uh, that we purchased a few years ago and turned into kind of a park space. And it's been phenomenal for ministry use. Well, this summer, we're gonna add a pavilion to it and some restrooms and a snack bar it's going to be a great space for the community to be able to come out and use that place, but also awesome for ministry use here. The North Courtyard on the other end of this building is really kind of getting broken up. The, the concrete is a mess and it's a bit of a hazard. And so all that's going to get replaced and expanded. It's going to be a really nice big outdoor area for doing ministry. And maybe if you were paying attention, you even noticed some new carpet today out in the lobby. And that's pretty awesome, right? Very excited about that. You can still see remnants of the green around here and the staining and the, the bubbling up of the carpet, which was a tripping hazard. So we had to replace it for safety reasons. And we're gonna replace the carpet in here as well. So uh, we're just thankful to be able to have some, some fresh looks and some updating around the campus. And there's a lot more going on as well. I won't spend all the time to go into it all, but we're very thankful for our awesome facilities team and our ministry support staff and the whole operations team and everything that they're doing here. Um, there's a lot of ministry stuff happening too. And if you haven't uh, been paying attention to the announcements, it's important to, to be watching those and see what's going on. We've got a Feed Nicaragua event coming up this weekend, which we'd love to have you participate in. There's a mother-daughter mud run coming up soon as well. There's a baby bottle campaign for Thrive uh, that starts next week. And there's a whole lot more going on. So just want to let you know, there's a lot of stuff happening, a lot of things coming back after a year of many things being shut down, right? And, and want you to know about it and be able to participate in it and get back into church life together. So efree.org slash weekly is a great place to get that information. And if you're not signed up for our email updates, efree.org slash updates. Generally speaking, if there's something you wanna know about and it's a big thing that we do, if you just type efree.org slash and then a keyword, you're gonna find something related to what it is you're looking for. I also want to give you a little bit of a preview of what the rest of the services are going to look like for this year, because there's some stuff we were going to do last year that we had to put on hold, and we're now going to get into it this year. And I just kind of want to let you know, what is the rest of the year going to look like for us? Uh, after we're done with the parable series, we're going to have a service on July 4th weekend that's just focused on prayer. And it's going to be praying for our country, for our nation, for the people, for issues facing our country. And we're just going to dedicate the entire service that day to a time of prayer. 
After that, we're gonna have a couple of weeks where we're gonna look at our vision and our values coming out of the pandemic. Where is the church headed? Where do we believe God is taking us? The elders and the pastors have actually been working on this for about three years now. It has been a long process, um, and, and we think it is a great time for us, especially coming out of this pandemic now, to be able to share where do we think God is leading us, and what are we going to value as a church, and what are we going to rally around? Um, some key phrases. You're not going to find anything that's going to shock you or surprise you. Everything's going to trace right back to biblical principles. None of it's going to seem like, well, this is a radical change in direction. Not at all, but it's going to give us some common language that we can rally around and say, okay, this is what we're about as a church. And it's already true in our church, but now we've got some terminology that we can we can point to and, and put on our website and tell people this is what we're all about as a church. So we're going to do that for a couple of weeks. Then we're going to get into a series on justice and the Bible. We're going to talk about what is biblical justice and, and what does it mean that God is a just God? And then how should that apply to the world and how should believers be involved with that and respond to that? What does that have to do with things like social justice and discrimination and racism and equality and, and all those sorts of issues? We're going to talk about that from a biblical perspective. We're not going to get into the politics of it or the policies of it per se. We're going to try to frame the conversation in a way that helps us to speak into those things from a biblical perspective without necessarily telling everybody how they should vote or believe on certain policies and, and issues. So um, after that, we're going to go back to 1 Timothy. Last year, you'll remember, we had started this series on 1 Timothy. We got through the first chapter, and the pandemic caused us to, to put, the, put the pause button on for that because we were about to get into 1 Timothy chapter 2, which is where Paul goes into restrictions for women in church roles and leadership. And we were going to do a big thing about that. And the, the elders had spent over a year doing an in-depth study of that issue. And we've got a paper that we've been working on that we were going to release at that time and share information and guidance about where we thought God was leading us as a church with regard to this important issue. Um, and we did not feel it was wise to do that when we were all in our homes watching online and facing a big pandemic and we didn't really know what exactly we were dealing with in COVID-19 at the time. And so it was just a very, very um, bad time for us to get into that. So we put that on hold. We're gonna pick that up again this year and uh, we're going to get back into 1 Timothy. We're gonna, we're gonna talk about the, uh, the issue of women and leadership in the church and what the Bible has to say about that and, and what our study has found and, and where we see God leading us as a church about that. So really um, a, very, a very light and non-controversial year ahead of us. Uh, some easy, you know, low-hanging fruit for us to pick. And even the Biblical Justice series was actually something we had planned for last year at the end of the summer. And, and we had to push pause on that because of some issues that came up in the church at the time that, that took all of our elder board's attention for, for months. And so um, we were able to get back into it at the beginning of this year. We're working with some special uh, guests from the outside who have already been here and talked with our elders and pastors and staff. And they're going to come in and help us with this over the summer like they were going to last year. So I'm excited about what we're going to get into. Um, it's, it's been in the works for a long time, and, and we finally feel like it's right to be there. And in fact, pretty much no matter what happens, we're going to do it all this year. We, we just want to get to these things. And so we, you won't want to miss any of this. Um, you'll want to be here every week for everything we're doing. If you got to miss, make sure you join us online. And hey, hi to everyone watching online right now. Um, be sure you're with us every single week because this is going to be important stuff for our church. And, and be praying as well, because with some of the things we're going to talk about this year, you better believe there's going to be a target on our back, and there's going to be a target on our, our leadership and our pastors and our elders' backs. And so please be praying for the protection of God, because spiritual warfare will be a real thing 
um, this year, and it's gonna, it's gonna hit hard, and we've already felt that over this last year and, and beyond, but I think this year we may be looking at a lot more of that, so please be praying for us and praying for this church and praying for the unity of the church and, and a, a spirit of unity even when we disagree, which is the focus of a lot of Paul's letters to the church was, was all about, I want you guys, even though you have these disagreements, to be able to get along and, and be united around the things that matter most. So that's what we're looking at for the rest of the year. Make sure you join us for that. We're gonna spend a little bit of time in prayer right now, not just for the message, but I also wanna bring to your attention what's happening around the world, specifically in India, with regard to the COVID-19 pandemic. And you've probably heard about how bad the situation is in India. It really is absolutely devastating over there. I've got friends who live over there and missionaries who serve over there. In the last several years, India has become a very difficult place to do ministry. And a lot of missionaries have been kicked out. Um, a lot of Christian mi mission work has had to go underground and has faced a lot of severe persecution under the government that's been in place for the last several years. Well, now the COVID-19 pandemic has just hit this place incredibly hard. And, and we as a church support people that are over there doing work over there. I wanted to share with you a message we got this week from one of them. I'm not gonna give any identifying information, but I just want you to get a little sense for what is it like to be on the ground in India, doing ministry, dealing with the situation they have right now, where I think just the other day they had something like 400,000 cases, new cases in one day, and thousands of people dying a day. And it's just a very tragic situation. So here's what we heard this week. The situation, this man says here, is very gloomy here in India, with the second wave of COVID-19 going so crazy. I have lost around 12 pastor friends, among many others I knew closely, in just the last three weeks. Death is knocking at the door of everyone and everywhere. Our health system collapsed. There are no beds or oxygen in any hospital. There are hundreds of people struggling with COVID symptoms right now all around us. We lost my eldest sister around 60 years old two days ago. Now her daughter, my niece, who is seven months pregnant, is battling between life and death, and the doctors say they can save only one, either the mother or the child. Please pray for her. I want to ask you to join me in praying for the people of India right now. Our brothers and sisters in Christ who are over there, of whom there are many, the Christian workers who are trying to reach more people with the gospel, and the people who don't know Jesus yet. Maybe this is an opportunity where, where the doors are going to open where there'll be opportunities for Christian relief organizations that have been kicked out of the country to come back in and help because they're in such a desperate need of help. Uh, where there will be a, a renewed receptivity to the gospel and an understanding that the government, um, which, which has um, clamped down in religious persecution, maybe doesn't have the answers that people need. And maybe Jesus does. And that's what they need to hear. So would you just bow your heads and, and pray with me now? <clears throat> Father, it is devastating to hear what is happening in India, and we've just scratched the surface. The, the body count is so high, they don't even have places to, and enough wood to burn all the bodies. And it's such a, a horrible situation over there right now. And we know that this is all because it's a broken and, and fallen world, because of, of the sinfulness of people long ago. We, we face all sorts of diseases and calamities, and it's not how you originally designed this world. And we know that you want to reach people in India with your message of love and grace and truth, which is so different than what they get from their religious leaders and their government that, that run things right now. And we know there are people there who are suffering and hurting. There are brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering 
and hurting and who experience death all around them. And Lord, we pray for them that you would strengthen and encourage them, that you would give them the energy and the grace and the hope that they need to lean on you and trust in you in the middle of some really difficult circumstances and then some opportunities, opportunities to share your message with more people. We pray that your Holy Spirit would convict people of their sin and, and re- that you would reveal yourself to them so that they would understand there is truth in this world. There are things that they can hope in and can rely on that are so different than what so many of them have been taught. God, we pray that the gospel would advance forward in this country like we haven't seen in ages and that this would be an opportunity of a tragedy that would turn for so many people into an incredible blessing, a spiritual blessing as you work in that place. Lord, as we turn our attention now to your word and study it together, I pray that you would soften our hearts to hear the message you have for us, that you'd speak through me in, in a way that I, I can't even do on my own, that you would, you would give us insight and, and speak to each and every one of us as we learn from you and, and try to learn from your word and, and understand how you want us to live, Lord. Correct our thinking where it is wrong. Help us to pursue you with all our heart. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Today we're gonna look at Luke chapter 15. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open Luke chapter 15. You can follow along at efree.org slash Bible if you wanna do that, or in the YouVersion Bible app, if you search for First Free Church, you'll find us there, and you'll be able to find the, the scripture that way as well. Last week, we looked at Luke 14 and some parables about building a tower and going to war, the cost of being a disciple, of following Jesus. And if you got the discussion questions last week, you saw a quote that I put in there. I wanna read it to you because I think it summarizes what we talked about last week really, really well. It says, discipleship changes our allegiances with family, requires the willingness to die, shifts the focus off self-centeredness, places one at the disposal of another, and changes the way one handles financial resources. T.W. Manson reportedly commented, salvation may be free, but it is not cheap. If you don't get those discussion questions, those are all at efree.org slash discussion, by the way. And uh, many of our groups use those to go deeper into the messages. Salvation may be free, but it is not cheap. That's the message of last week. Trusting in Jesus and being saved by him involves dedicating your whole life to him. He wants to touch every part of it. He wants to be involved not just on Sundays, but Monday through Saturday in everything you do at school and work and shopping and home and with kids and family and friends and all of that stuff should be transformed by Jesus. Salvation is free, but it's not cheap. Last week's parables answered the question, can I add just a little Jesus to my life? Is that okay? And the answer to that is, of course, no. Jesus wants to be Lord of your whole life. And today we're gonna look at another parable in the very next chapter. And this parable is gonna answer a different question. Who is invited to be a part of this group of Jesus followers? Who can be a part of this? Or more specifically, the question is, why is Jesus letting some of the worst people around be a part of his group? Why is he letting some of the people that we may not wanna be associated with that we might think their lifestyle doesn't doesn't match what we would want them to have. Why is Jesus allowing those people to be in their group? See, the religious leaders of the day had very strict rules about what made you a good religious person, a good Jew, and what, what wasn't, who you could associate with and who you couldn't. There were different Jewish groups called sects, S-E-C-T-S, sects of Jewish people that maintained different rules for spiritual purity. 
And when those religious leaders saw how inclusive Jesus was in his ministry, they got very upset by that. Here's how Luke explains it in the first couple of verses of chapter 15. He says, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law, also called scribes, complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Now notice the problem here. Tax collectors and notorious sinners were coming to listen to Jesus teach. And what was the problem? He didn't send them away. He let them listen. He let them hang out. He was okay with spending time with people who the religious leaders thought he shouldn't be associating with. And what's worse, he was eating with them. Now, notorious sinners are the people who didn't follow the Jewish laws and customs, people who didn't really even bother, didn't care to. And they might have been involved in a number of sinful activities, but a big part of it was they weren't willing to follow all of the extra religious traditions and customs. And so the people who were really religious would look down on them because they didn't just violate God's laws. They violated all the extra laws that were added by men to God's laws. The tax collectors were double trouble because tax collectors, not only they were Jewish people who had decided to collaborate with the occupying Roman army and government to tax the Jewish people. When Rome would conquer an area, they would tax the people to fund their continued war effort and their empire, and they would get some people who were a part of the local group to actually go be tax collectors for them because they could do a better job of it. They knew the local people, and then they would allow them to charge a fee for their services. So imagine if the IRS showed up at your door with a military escort and said, I'm here to collect your tax, and I'm going to tack on a 15% fee for myself just for my trouble. Imagine how you would feel, okay? Pretty repulsive, pretty disgust. That's what people felt toward the tax collectors. These were people that were not only taking money and giving it to Rome and collaborating with the Roman enemy, but they were also tacking on a fee for themselves and often charging a really big fee. And they had Roman military soldiers who would go with them to be able to enforce this. So these people were absolutely despised. So why are these Pharisees and religious leaders so upset about this. The Pharisees, we need to learn a little bit about them to understand the parable Jesus is going to tell. The Pharisees were a powerful sect in Judaism, and they believed in strict adherence, not just to the law of God, but to the extra man-made laws they added to that, which were eventually codified into the 613 laws that, that observant Jews still practice today. The Pharisees called this creating hedges around the law. So there's a law and we don't want you to break God's law. So to make sure you don't break God's law, we're gonna create extra laws around that to make sure you never get close to actually breaking God's laws. It's the same thing we do with our kids all the time. Like we don't want you to touch the stove. And so we're gonna say, maybe don't get a chair and climb up on the counter, right? We, we don't want you even on the counter, which we have one that loves to climb. And, and we can leave the room for two minutes and she'll be on top of the counter right next to the stove. We don't just want to teach her not to touch the stove. She may not even understand that yet. We're going to create an extra rule that actually isn't that important of a rule, but it's to keep her from breaking the more important rule where she actually might get burned. And this is what the Pharisees did. They created extra rules around God's laws. They created hedges around the law to make sure no one would actually break God's laws. The teachers of religious law, the other group that's mentioned here, are called the scribes. And they were basically religious lawyers. They were teachers experts in religious law, not just God's law, but man's added laws as well. There are still scribes today, like this man, who, who will continue to copy the Torah for synagogues. That was one of their responsibilities. The scribes would create copies of the Old Testament books of the Bible. They were the manual printing press 
of their day. And these were very religious people, the scribes and the Pharisees. They were very proud of their religiosity. They knew all the rules that you were supposed to follow to look religious, and they rejected and looked down on people who didn't follow those rules, who didn't practice their legalistic form of Judaism. They wouldn't associate them. They wouldn't eat meals with those unclean, impure people, or else they might become unclean. There was a big problem in Israel at the time because of this occupying Roman army and and a lot of different Jewish groups of people, uh, different sects of Judaism. You had the Pharisees and the Essenes and the Sadducees and the Zealots and a few other groups. And they all had different ideas about how do you stay pure when there are people around you who aren't pure? Like I'm following all the rules, God's rules and the extra man-made rules, but my neighbor isn't. Can I eat with him? Can I talk to him? Can, can we talk across the fence? Can we like, where are, where are the limits there? And different groups had different answers to this question. The Essenes decided you have to separate yourself completely from the rest of society. You have to go live in the desert and you're just gonna be your own little community there. And that's why we have the Dead Sea Scrolls because the Essenes went off into the desert in the mountains and caves and they created their own little community there and they collected all these um, scrolls and, and books and preserved them in jars for us in caves and, and they... They went off and had their own little community, and that's why many of those books were preserved there for so long and unknown, because they were off in a remote location, not living with the rest of society. Why? To keep themselves pure. The Pharisees had a very different idea. The Pharisees said, no, you can continue to live in the same area with all these impure Gentiles and Romans and, and the Jewish people that aren't following all the extra laws, you know, these notorious sinners, these tax collectors, these Romans, you can continue to do that, but you can't associate with them. There are limits to how you can interact with them and who you can eat with, or else you become impure as they are impure. And the problem here with Jesus was that he was welcoming too many people into the tent. He was being inclusive when they wanted him to be exclusive. These were people that the good religious people had already rejected. And according to them and their culture, he should be shaming them. He should be saying things against them, declaring them as sinners and sending them away. But he not only let them hang around, but he actually ate meals with them. And looking at it from the outside, you can see how the Pharisees might go, aren't you sort of condoning their behavior? By allowing them to be here and not condemning them and rejecting them and shaming them and sending them away like all the other rabbis do, aren't you kind of like accepting them? the way they are in their sinfulness and and that sinful lifestyle. And you can kind of understand why to the Pharisees, they would view his silence here as a problem. Why was he not being more outspoken at rejecting these people? Now, either this was brought up to Jesus or as was the case sometimes, he just knew what they were thinking. And he decided to answer them with a parable. Verse three of Luke 15. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. It's a beautiful parable. And it has so often been misinterpreted and wrongly applied to a number of different situations. There are all sorts of weird views about what this parable represents. I'm only going to share one of them with you because it's the one I have most frequently heard over my years as a pastor in multiple churches. There are some people who interpret this parable 
as referring to the church. And they apply this by saying that if someone is going to leave a church, that the shepherds of that church, leaders, elders, pastors, whatever it is, should go pursue that person and try to bring them back into the church. I've heard this many, many times over the years in different churches. Now, usually, um, in every instance I have personally experienced, this is because someone has not gotten their way about something in the church and they're upset about that and so they're leaving and then kind of on their way out the door, they're communicating either directly or through other people. Well, this parable says you're supposed to come and try to make me happy and bring me back in. You're supposed to somehow make amends with me and pursue me and I wanna feel wanted and needed and I want you to come after me and bring me back into the flock and this verse says that you have to do that and they get frustrated when you don't. And I wanna be clear here, there are sometimes good reasons to leave a church, right? Uh, in fact, this whole last year has been just a fruit basket upset for churches all across the country. I mean, just looking out over the church here, there are a bunch of people here who I don't really know who you are. And, and last year, I felt like I had a really good handle. A year, year and a half ago, I felt like I had a really good handle on who was at the church and, and the new people like were obvious and, and you know, getting to know them. And now it's just like, wow, there's, there's a bunch of different people coming to the church now. And the same thing is true in every church across the country. I've talked to dozens of pastors about this. And the, the pandemic has given an opportunity and in some cases, good reason for people to say, you know what? This church is not helping our family spiritually. They're not leading us well. We're gonna go to another church. There are times where there are good reasons to leave a church. I'm not trying to give the wrong impression there. But I do think that sometimes we look at church with a country club mindset where when we don't get our preferences met, when we don't have our desires the way we want them, um, there's some secondary issue. The, the, what I'm talking about here is always the, the third and fourth buckets, conviction and preferences, not dogma, not doctrine. I never hear anybody use this parable the wrong way because there was some doctrinal thing they disagreed with. It's always like, I wanted this to be done, you didn't do it, now I'm upset, and now I'm leaving, and I want you to chase after me. That's kind of always the way I hear that in that context. And... And when those people get frustrated and they want to leave the church, again, there are sometimes there are good reasons to leave, but when, when there aren't good reasons to leave and people get frustrated and they leave the church, sometimes they don't really want to leave the church. They just want something to chase after them, to try to get them to stay and pursue them. And so they will point to this parable and say, see, Jesus would leave the 99 sheep to go chase after the one. And I'm that one lost sheep. And so I need people from the church to come chasing after me. And, and just to be clear, when people leave the church, even if they do it the wrong way, we, we still love them. We still want the best for them. We can still interact with them. This is not like a, oh, you're, you're leaving the church? Well, you're dead to us now and, and we shun you. None of that at all. Uh, but I just want us to understand one of the most common applications of this parable that I have heard over the years from people in churches, um, in this church and, and other ch multiple other churches before that, um, is this idea that the church is the 99 and the one lost sheep is the one that's disgruntled and so they need to be chased after. In fact, I know a pastor very well, a good friend of mine and, and, and someone that I really look up to, but, but on this one issue, he has sometimes worried himself sick because of a misapplication of this parable where when someone has been upset with him for something that they didn't get their way on, a preference issue, and I, I know the situations personally, and they have threatened to leave the church, he actually believed because of this parable and only because of this parable that it was his responsibility to abandon all of his other pastoral duties, to stop doing the discipleship he was doing, stop focusing on the other ministry activities, stop focusing on the 99 as he saw it, and to go pursue this one sheep who was upset about something. And he spent all his time doing that and physically became sick sometimes 
because of his belief that that's what this parable refers to. And that has nothing to do with the real meaning of this parable. And when you understand the history and the context behind it, I think that will become clear. Jesus was not talking about the church. The 99 is not the church. The church didn't even exist yet. That is not at all what he is referring to. He wasn't talking about pastors or church leaders. The reality is the people that when they leave a church in in disgust because they didn't get their way about something, the reality is they are more closely associated with the Pharisees that Jesus rebuked than with the lost sheep. The lost sheep is not the disgruntled churchgoer, not at all. The the people who are disgruntled because they didn't get something, when we leave a church because we cared more about getting our way, because of our pride, because of some agenda we wanted to see put in place, and we cared more about that than God's mission of reaching lost people, we weren't willing to agree to disagree on some things as Paul told us to do. We weren't willing to keep the gospel the main thing and we, we had to have our way on some secondary things. That is absolutely the way the Pharisees operated and what Jesus criticized. One interesting thing I've seen over the last 15 years of, of doing full-time ministry is that the people who are most focused on getting their way on secondary issues. We're not talking doctrine. We're not talking gospel dogma. We're talking preferences. We're talking convictions. The people who are most focused on getting their own way in some secondary issues are usually the ones that are least focused on reaching people for the kingdom. They have their priorities out of order. And the reverse always seems to be true. The people that are most focused on reaching people for the kingdom and view the gospel as a main priority in their life, they seem to be the ones that are least concerned with being catered to. That just always seems to go together. So if this parable is not about the church and it's not about disgruntled people leaving a church and and being pursued and abandoning the people in the church to go pursue the one that's leaving the church, and again, not to say that we don't love them and care for them, not to say that we don't wanna meet with them and find out what their issues are and, and, and be able to have some agreement if there is possibility there, again. But I'm just saying this is the most common misapplication of this parable. I wanna make sure we understand that is not what Jesus is talking about here. So what is he talking about? What does this parable mean? Jesus tells this parable for one simple reason, and that is to defend his approach to ministry. He did not bring this parable up because he wanted to teach something that people were supposed to do. He brought this up because he knew that the Pharisees and the scribes were condemning him and judging him because of who he allowed to be a part of his ministry, because of the type of people he hung out with and associated with. And the reason Jesus told this parable was simply to defend his approach to ministry, to explain why was he allowing so many people into his following. Tax collectors, notorious sinners, who he would even eat with. Why would he do that? It's not because he agrees with their sinful actions. He teaches against sin on a regular basis. But here's what he does. He didn't invite, he didn't require them to change before they could start following him. He invited them to follow him so that they could be changed. Leave that up there for a minute so we can just think about that. He did not expect them to change before they could start following him. He invited them to start following him so that they could be changed. That is a completely different way than the world operates and the world's religions operate. And frankly, that many times the church operates. The church in general, not just this church, but just the church in general over the centuries has struggled with this idea for a long, long time, just as the Pharisees did. Do people have to clean up their act first before they can be a part of the family here, before they can be involved, before they can can get to know us and build relationships here? Do they have to present themselves as righteous as possible on their own merits to be a part of the family of God? Or does God welcome them in the middle of their brokenness and their mess 
and, and how the, just all of the stuff of life that they have, the baggage that's still hanging on to them, the, the habits that they have that, that maybe to us were like, oh, I can't believe they would do that. Do they feel like they can still be here and be welcomed because God welcomes those people before they have changed? He doesn't expect them to change so that they can be welcomed. This is what Jesus was defending about his ministry. And if this is how Jesus operates, then shouldn't we? Who is our tax collector today? Who is our notorious sinner today? The person that when we look at them, we immediately think of judgment and condemnation and shame and disgust. But Jesus looks at them with compassion and wants to see them become a part of his family and wants to love them before they become the person that is so lovable. That was the ministry that Jesus had. He didn't turn outcasts away because his approach to life change was totally different than the world's approach to life change. The world and all the world's religions say basically the same thing. You have to fix yourself. You have to do the work to make yourself acceptable to us in our eyes. You have to follow our rules, whatever that is. If you do these things and you don't do these things, then you'll be pure, you'll be acceptable, whether it's pure in God's eyes or pure enough to enter nirvana or pure enough for the the culture to accept you or whatever it is, but you've got to work on you. You've got to fix you. And that's exactly what the Pharisees believed. These people, they need to change. They need to clean up their act before they will be acceptable to us, before we'll have anything to do with them. They need to get themselves right in our eyes before we will accept them, before we'll eat with them, before we'll teach them. Theologically, here's what the Pharisees believed. You have to do the work of repentance. This is literally what they believed. You have to do the work of repentance to be accepted by God and the religious community. You do the work of repentance. This is so important to understand if you're gonna understand this parable of Jesus. Otherwise, it won't make sense. At the end of this parable, Jesus says in verse seven, in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. What Jesus is saying here is that this parable is all about repentance and returning to God. He says, in the same way, this is what happens when a sinner repents and returns to God. That's what this parable is about. But did you see repentance in that parable? Did you see the sheep who the shepherd is searching for say, oh, I'm sorry, I screwed up. Did you see the sheep return to the shepherd? How is this parable about repentance and returning to God? I didn't see the sheep repent. I didn't see the sheep return. It's not what I saw at all. This will only make sense if you understand what the Pharisees believed about repentance. Repentance was a big deal to them. The main idea of the Pharisees was that the temple sacrifice wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to go occasionally to the temple and do the things you were supposed to do at the temple. Every day, you had to to have a higher standard of religious living and religious purity. And so they added extra things that you were supposed to do. And one of those was doing the work of repentance. You had to do the work of repentance. What did that mean? Three things to the Pharisees. The first thing is you confess your sin. You admit that you were wrong. The second is you make compensation for what you did. So you make amends. You somehow pay for what you did wrong. And the third thing is you demonstrate your sincerity in not doing it again. Those were the three steps to doing the work of repentance according to the Pharisees. So if your donkey uh, got away from you because you didn't tie it up right or you didn't have the fence the way it should be or whatever, you just, you were negligent, your donkey got away and it broke the fence of your neighbor, you had to go to your neighbor, first of all, you had to admit that it was your fault, you were wrong, 
Then you had to make amends for it. You had to pay for the fence or fix it yourself or whatever. And then you had to show sincerity and that you were not going to allow this to happen. Again, you're going to get a stronger rope. You're going to put up a fence. You're going to do something to make sure that you, you are a changed person. This is not going to happen again. And you apply this to every aspect of your life and everything you do wrong, and you will be ritually pure. You will be pure enough that you'll be acceptable to God because heaven forbid that you, your last sacrifice was two weeks ago in the temple and you did a bunch of bad stuff and then you died before you could get back there and pay for it again. But if you could make sure you were always doing the work of repentance, you would always be covered and you'd always be acceptable to God. You had to do the work of repentance. Now we can all agree that these are good steps if you've done something wrong. Confess it, make amends for it, be sincere in not doing it again. But this is what repentance meant to the Pharisees. It's what they were teaching at this time. And when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and there was no way for you to practice the sacrifices anymore and atone for your sins that way, the Pharisees already had this system set up that was able to replace it and fill in the gaps. We can't sacrifice anymore because the only place we can sacrifice is in the temple. We've got this whole repentance thing that we've been doing in between temple days why don't we just do that all the time and call it good? And that has basically become what we know as observant Judaism today. Pharisaical Judaism won over the Sadducees, over the Zealots, over the Essenes. The Pharisees won. That became rabbinical Judaism. And rabbinical Judaism continued for hundreds and hundreds of years. And as it started to get a little more secular, it gave birth to Orthodox Judaism and ultra-Orthodox Judaism. And today, if you talk to an observant Jew, basically they are in the line of, whether they know it or not, Pharisaical Judaism. That's the, the history, and this is what they practice today. Among other things, this idea of repentance, doing the work of repentance, is a part of being right with God. But in the parable, did the sheep follow this pattern at all? Did the sheep confess and make amends and demonstrate sincerity or any of that? Not at all. That was completely missing from the parable, and yet Jesus says, this is about repentance, in the same way, this is what happens when a, a lost sinner repents and returns to God. Did the sheep make any compensation for running away from the shepherd? No. Did the sheep do anything to make its way back to the shepherd and return to the shepherd? No. So if this is about repentance, then what does repentance look like in the parable? The shepherd pursues the lost sheep. The shepherd finds the lost sheep. The shepherd picks the sheep up and carries it home on his shoulders. Now, I've got to be honest with you. If I were the shepherd and I had to spend my entire day away from the other sheep, just looking for this one sheep that ran away, I would be a little frustrated. I'd be grumbly. I mean, before I pick the sheep up, I might just, you know, kick it. I mean, you stupid sheep. Make me waste my time all, all day. But he picks it up. He carries it home on his shoulders. I mean, I have to go leave all my other sheep out there in the wilderness just to go find Fluffy, and I find him, I'm going to be pretty upset with him. Now, one thing we need to understand here about this whole leaving the other sheep thing, this is where some of the wrong interpretation comes in too. The idea that, um, some people make a big deal about the fact that he abandoned the 99 to go find the one. He abandoned them. No, he didn't. He left them in the wilderness. There's 100 sheep. If you've ever been to the Middle East and seen actual shepherds, and they're carrying their sheep around, usually it's um, a dozen, maybe 20, 25 sheep, it's not a hundred with one shepherd. That's because you would never have, and the shepherds there today will tell you, you would never have one shepherd for a hundred sheep. 
He did not abandon the 99 sheep. If you have 100 sheep, you have some assistant shepherds. You have at least one, maybe two assistant shepherds with the sheep. And we know for a fact that he did not just abandon them in the wilderness. Why? Because when he found the lost sheep, did he head back to the wilderness to collect the other 99? Or did he go straight home? He went straight home. He carried it directly home. Why? Because the assistant shepherds, he knew, were taking the other 99 back to the home. There's a whole wrong application that has come out of thinking that he abandoned the sheep with no one else to care for them just to go after this one. That is not at all what the text teaches. But he carries the sheep home. These sheep are not lightweight. They're 80 to 90 pounds. If you've ever done some serious hiking where you've had like a 60, 70, 80 pound pack on your back for a long time, it's not an easy thing to do. And why would he have to even carry the sheep? When a sheep gets lost and it realizes that it's lost, it starts to get scared. And when it gets scared, its legs quiver and shake just like ours do when we get scared, you know, but theirs are even worse. And it's so bad that it can't walk anymore. And so when a sheep realizes that it's lost and it freaks out, its legs shake so bad that it just plops down on the ground and it just bellows out for help. And it's basically just an invitation for the wolves and lions to come and get it, just laying down there. So when the shepherd finds the sheep bellowing out, laying on the ground, he can't even put a rope on it and and get it to follow him because its legs are still shaking so much, there's no way it can walk back to where it needs to go. And that's why he has to pick the sheep up onto his shoulders and hold the legs to his chest and then carry this thing all the way back home. And this is what repentance and restoration look like to Jesus. Not an outward action that makes you good enough to be a part of his family. He's the one who does all the work. What did the sheep do to repent? What did the sheep do to return? All the sheep did was stop running. All the sheep did was sit down and cry out and let the shepherd take it home. Paul says in Titus 3, when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love. He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. John says in 1 John 1, 9, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Notice that it's not us doing the cleansing from wickedness. It's him cleansing the wickedness. What did we have to do? Confess. There are many other religions and faiths in the world where this verse doesn't make sense because what's supposed to happen is you clean yourself up at least to a certain point. Maybe there's some grace involved too, but it's you doing the work plus the grace that gets applied together and ultimately that ends up making you right with God. And the Bible says that is not how any of this works. That is not how repentance works. It's not doing the work of repentance. You know, the word repentance literally means to change your mind. Literally, that's what the word means. The Pharisees had this whole extra interpretation of what doing the work of repentance meant. But literally, it means to change your mind. And biblical repentance is to change your mind away from sin and toward God. It's a change of mind, or we might say today a change of heart. Away from sin and toward God. And and this is what God wants from us. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter where we come from, no matter what kind of baggage we have in our life, he's not asking us for, for us to clean up our act on our own. He's not asking for us to figure this out and somehow reach a certain level or do enough good to overcome our bad or any of that stuff. He wants us to turn, turn away internally from our sin and turn to him and let him come and cleanse us from all 
wickedness. He wants to change us from the inside out. Probably the most moving part of this parable is at the very end. After the shepherd finds the sheep and he picks it up and places it on his shoulders and he starts walking all the way home and he just yells and criticizes the sheep the whole way. You, you dumb sheep, why would you run away from me like that? Is that, what he, is that what he does? Look at verse five. When he has found it, he will what? Joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. If your view of God is as a vindictive and condemning and critical God, then you don't know the God of the Bible. This is Jesus's picture of what happens when the lost sheep stops running and sits down and cries out and lets the shepherd take it home. He joyfully brings it back. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, based on all the things I have done, God can't possibly love me. He can't possibly accept me. He can't possibly want me back. For Christians that have done something terrible, it's so hard for them to recognize that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the Bible says. There's no condemnation. There's no guilt. There's no shame. Why? Because Jesus took care of all of that. But there are so many people who have this idea that I've done all this bad stuff and now how could God possibly want me? And what you need to understand is, listen to this parable, you are the type of person that he's pursuing. You are the type of person that Jesus is pursuing and wanting to bring back into the flock, not the people who think they're righteous, not the people who think they have it all figured out, not the Pharisees who think they've cracked the code on being religious. He is seeking the lost ones. He's seeking the broken ones, the ones who are far from him. Jesus said in Luke chapter five, I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. The truth is there are probably some people who are watching this today online or here in the room who are, who are Christians who have messed up and they think, man, I've messed up so bad, I don't know how God could want me back. What you have to realize is this is exactly what Jesus said he will do when he finds that one lost sheep. I'll carry it home joyfully. This is what the good shepherd does with joy, brings it back not criticizing it, not judging it, not condemning it, not shaming it. You messed up, you ran away with joy. Come back, let me bring you back. And there are probably some people here today who have never trusted in Jesus. Have, he's never become their shepherd. They're still trying to do things on their own. And that's really more of what Jesus is talking about in this parable. It's not primarily directed at Christians. It's directed at why is he pursuing people who are so lost? And you may have done all kinds of terrible things in your life. And you may think there is no way God could ever save me or would ever want to, but you've got it all wrong. God gets so much joy and glory in seeing someone whose life is an absolute disaster turned around and transformed into something incredible and beautiful. The more radical the transformation, <laughs> the more incredible it is. God's not asking you to clean your act up on your own. He's not asking you to fix yourself or to do the work of repentance or do a bunch of different things to somehow get his grace in your life. That's not how he works. His grace is offered for free. You just gotta sit down and cry out to him. Yes, you turn away from your sin internally, but you don't try to fix yourself on your own. That's what God is there for. That's what he wants to do in your life. At the end of our service today, I have a prayer team available at the four corners of this room. And if you wanna contact us online at efree.org slash connect, you can do this as well in case you're not here in the building. We would love to answer any questions you may have about what it looks like to turn to the shepherd and let him carry you home. 
And if you wanna know more about that, please, please talk to me afterward. Talk to somebody, anybody with a lanyard, let us know online at efree.org slash connect. And we would love to talk with you about what it means to be a part of his family and what that looks like. Let's pray together and we're gonna take communion together. Heavenly Father, you are the good shepherd. Jesus, you, you have done so much for us. You've sacrificed your life for us. You've made it possible for us to be a part of your family and your flock when we don't deserve it and we couldn't earn it. And it's certainly not because of the good stuff that we have done because we could never do enough good to outweigh our bad. But Lord, so often we struggle with this condemnation and this shame for the things we've done in the past or the the habits that we wrestle with, Lord, the, the sinful things that we do on a regular basis. And while we certainly do not want to go on sinning, we wanna see you purify us and transform our lives and change our desires. But it is so common for people to just feel this shame and this guilt and this condemnation that sort of gets them trapped into feeling like you could never want them again. And Lord, I pray today that that everybody here, everyone listening, would understand that you bring us back with joy, that you love seeing lost people transformed. You love seeing people who have messed up being, being restored back to you and that it's you that has to do the work. And I pray that that would give us hope and faith and reassurance, Lord, and that we would not try to just do it on our own, but that we would completely turn to you, devote our lives to you, to follow after you, God. And Lord, for those of us that, that know you and in some cases are maybe just going through the motions, my prayer for us, God, is that you would help us to remember that you did not ask people to change so that they could start to follow you, but you invited them to follow you so that you could help them change. Help us to have that mindset. Help us to have that graciousness with people, Lord, that we would be accepting and want to build relationships with people that, that maybe aren't, aren't like us or maybe we wouldn't approve of some of the things they do. Help us to show love and not judgment. Help us to show care and not condemnation. Help us to have the same kind of joy toward them learning about you and knowing you that you have instead of rejecting them like the Pharisees did, Lord. Help us not to be like that, but to have your mindset and your love and your compassion. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice and we remember it now, how you gave your life for us. You shed your blood, your body was broken so that we could be healed and transformed. And Lord, as we celebrate by remembering what you did on the cross, reveal to us those areas of our lives that we haven't completely turned over to you, those things that we're holding on to, Lord. Lord, work in us, help us as we confess our sin to cleanse us and purify us from any kind of wickedness that is in us so that our lives can be fully devoted to you. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.